0: I'm trying to recall the reason I first wanted to go to this province. Uh, At the time, I understood it to be the poorest province in China. The first time I really heard about this province was through a professor at Nanjing Forestry University. And she was another, Vice dean. They had these things they called vice deans, and it sounds a little alien to me. It's not a term we would use. There is my own vice dean, who is my immediate superior, so my immediate boss, and then there's the dean above him. She was another vice dean. So she wasn't my boss, but she was kind of selected as someone I could turn to because she knew English. Her English was quite good, actually. She was a good person to talk to. And she was into, I think maybe into community forestry a little bit. And while I was at Nanjing Forestry University, she disappeared. Like I got to know her, but there was a period, I think it was supposed to be she was going to be gone for a year. So this just gives you an idea inside the system, talking to her, I'd say, well, where are you going? And she was going to Guizhou, this is this province called Guizhou, Guizhou province. That's G-U-I-Z-H-O-U, pronounced Guizhou. And she was going there because it was the poorest province in China. And she had some kind of skill to help the province grow or develop further. And she was doing this as kind of part of her career. I think it was a choice she made because I got a sense of somehow connected to the Communist Party, that this was something that she was expected to do as an academic was to take her knowledge and apply it to a problem in China. And for her, I think, her expertise had something to do with the rural, rural poverty, I believe. Um, I don't know exactly, but that's what my understanding. She was told me she was preparing to go, that she would be away. I think she was warning me that I'm going to be gone for a long, you know, a year or something because I've got to go move to this province and do work, development work there to help lift up the province out of poverty and i got a sense as like it was something she needed to do if she wanted to continue up the hierarchy uh of the communist party communist party of china so anyway so this is how i first heard about guizhou like stand out i mean maybe i'd heard the name before but this is the first person i met who talked about guizhou And it was part of my research, had been uh, part of my research uh, on, I spent all this time initially uh, researching where's the best place to do community forestry research in China. And so I had to do a fair bit of research. I talked to people, but, you know, I largely I was working on my own. I didn't really have a good person to chat with. She was probably the best person to talk to. So that's maybe why I was talking to her. And I basically found out Southwest China was a place of high biodiversity. Where So I was looking for a place where you have lots of forests and you have minorities who manage the forest. And I found out that existed in Southeastern China or Southwestern especially, but also Southeastern and Northeastern. So the extreme, extreme edges of China. So I was planning on visiting all these places to figure out the best community forestry sites to use for my study. For, I went to Yunnan first, which is Southwest China, and it's right beside Guizhou. They're bordered on each other. And uh, it's just a little, it's a, the extreme West, Southwest of China. Guizhou is just slightly to the east and bordered on it of of Yunnan. Because Yunnan was really noted especially for community forestry, and there was a connection between Nanjing Forestry University and Southwest Forestry University, because they were both forestry universities, there was some personal connection there. So people helped me connect with professors in Yunnan. So I found out about Guizhou was one of those provinces potentially that had community forestry. In the end, I only went to Yunnan, like the money I had, the time and, you know, and being let go after a couple of years. uh, There just wasn't time to get to the other provinces. So I never went to Guizhou. But I think in the back of my mind, I, I thought I still want to check it out. So it was actually a few years later when I was working in another city, Jinan, that I decided to go to Guizhou on my own, just by myself. And so I figured out how to do that, the planes to get there. And you had to actually, you know, it's not a mainstream place. I'm trying to remember the name of the capital city, but like very few people had gone there. And I think it's still pretty much the same. It was especially noted for its forest cover, I believe the one province that had the highest forest cover beyond all others, even more than Yunnan. Yunnan has actually gone through quite a bit of development because it's bordered on Myanmar and there's all sorts of stuff going on Myanmar, uh, Chinese investment. I think there's a rail line or a pipe, is it a pipeline? There's something that now goes into uh, Yunnan. That's you know causing a lot of development there, but Guizhou is still isolated. And you had to take a I had to take a connecting flight to get there. So it's not easy to get there. And but researching before I went to this place, I found one of these rough guides, I think, to China. And I looked up Guizhou in there, and there was a name of a person who actually did tours and took people to minority villages to stay overnight. Or you could hike between minority villages in Guizhou. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So that's how I connected with her. And I think it had a phone number and all that, but I use WeChat and she was of the Meow minority. So that's M-I-A-O. And apparently the Meow, is the next biggest ethnicity in China next to the Han, but it's far, far less. You know, the Han is like, I can't remember, 90, 95% of the Chinese population, it's in the 90s. And the minorities are all the rest. And of that, say 5%, roughly, the Miao would be the largest minority in population. And so she was from the Miao minority And I remember her story and I asked her a lot of questions about, you know, being a minority. So she knew English. This is the only minority I met who knew English, who I could really dialogue with. And so I asked, you know, asked her about her childhood. And so really interesting. She was like hidden from the Chinese government. She was one of the babies that was not supposed to happen. Her family, you know, had her. They were living in a rural, poor, rural area. And because there was no record of her birth, she was not allowed to go to school. And they had to hide her from the authorities at the time. Like this is when they're trying to control the population. And uh, so my understanding is that she didn't go to school for years because she was hidden from the officials. The story she told me is that What she learned just out and about um, as a minority, I think she came across some English tourists once and she saw how they had money. And she just got that, hey, English, Uh, to know English would be very powerful, would really help me. And I think she on her own got the idea that she'd like to be a tour guide. And so she taught herself English So that's how her English is pretty good. And she had a sister, and maybe this was part of it, who actually married a British guy. And he was a teacher at an elite uh, high school in Beijing. But she lived in Guizhou, and she eventually became a tour guide for these international tourists who seemed to have a lot of money. You know, I'm just trying to take you back to her thinking when she was young. So that's what she did, she learned English and she started guiding uh, foreign tourists. So it wasn't Chinese tourists, but she told me she would only guide foreign tourists because she said it was the foreign tourists who are the most interested in the minority groups and the most uh, respectful of the minority groups. Her criticism was that Chinese might be interested in the minorities, but the ones she had met anyway, they were not very respectful of the minorities. They uh, they looked down on the minorities. And so she didn't want anything to do with the Chinese tourists. So this was fascinating. And so that's how I found her in a sort of Western English uh, tour guide. That's how I found out about her. So anyway, it was just one-on-one it wasn't a tour group and she said okay we're gonna go here so she figured i've stayed in a couple of communities uh i visited the biggest Miao community in the world which is in china and it's actually a famous tourist site lots of chinese tourists go there but it's pretty commercialized you know there's big dances they dress up uh you know, I think it is traditional dress, but it just feels uh slightly over the top, like there's busloads of tourists that go to this town and it has a nice light show at night. I mean, yeah, you know, and I'm not even sure how natural <laughs> that the lights are, but it that's what it's known for. And so this is the probably village to visit in um in Guizhou that everyone knows. And it's a meow community. So it's her people. So I went to that one just as a day trip, and we walked around. It was fascinating and cool and everything. But I didn't stay the night there because I, you know, I told her I'm like an off the beaten path kind of guy, like take me to a remote place. So so she did. So she took me, and so I would spend literally like I think I can't remember if it was three or five day trip I did with her. I was with her one-on-one all the time and so we would go and to the traditional market buy the traditional foods that we take to the cook in the traditional uh, community that we would visit and maybe stay overnight and they would cook this traditional food from the forest and that's what I'd be eating so it was just like super cool and anyway, so I always had uh, conversations with her about, tell me about your relationship with the rest of China, kind of thing. And I'd ask her, do you feel, really feel like one with the rest of China? And she pretty much would say, yeah. She didn't say anything really negative, but I'd keep pushing because I was always trying to think, you know, maybe there's something underneath this. And I keep going, well, you know the hen are pretty different you're meow they're hen and and you told me that you know in general Han don't respect minorities and uh do you think you know how do you think the meow are different and she said well i think the meow have more culture i remember she said that and that was the sense you got when you went to this province a lot of uh, the trips she would guide people to i don't think it was necessarily overnight stays but it was to visit at certain times of the year when that ethnic group was celebrate had a festival so it was the festivals that really drew people because the festivals people would dress up in their traditional clothing they do traditional dances and it's you know and some of the clothing it, it is pretty wild it's A little bit over the top like some of the hats you see and so on like I mean if I showed you pictures you would not think China it's different maybe you see these pictures in National Geographic it is pretty uh different and so that's when she would bring people to these um celebrations but I wasn't there at the right time of year for these celebrations but Just by seeing the sheer number of the times they had these kind of festivals, you did get a sense of, wow, this is a rich culture. They have all these things going on. And she felt, you know, these, the minorities had far more of this than the Han Chinese, which I think she typically saw them as really westernized, you know, from her point of view, because I was in traditional more traditional type China, like the, all the buildings were made of wood. You didn't see concrete every, anywhere. You know, if you recall, uh, when I went, my first impression at Nanjing Forestry University was concrete and marble as the construction materials everywhere. And wood was virtually not to be seen anywhere. And that I was lucky because I had a wooden floor. It was almost the only place I saw wood at the whole university. And so that was exceptional. So to be in Guizhou, which has the greatest forest cover in China, and to go to these traditional villages, everything was wood. Concrete was nowhere to be found, or marble. And so this was traditional. And of course, the Miao, they have their separate language, but she didn't have a lot of critical things to say about that. That's about as much as she said. There wasn't any sort of deep anger or anything some of the frustrations was she felt the government was pushing the minorities to like play up these festivals right like that big community i talked about that has become very touristy she said that's really what the government wanted for all the minorities so it had happened with this one meow community which is the biggest and she didn't like what had happened there because, as you can imagine, it was, it was over the top. It was, it was, you know, pretty, just kind of putting on displays of minorities for the tourists. You know, they do little dances and everything, almost like circus animals. And so she felt that the Chinese government was pushing all minorities to be like this, which she didn't like because they would lose their traditions. So that was a, another little criticism. But in gen, there wasn't a deep hatred or anything like that. I never heard that. And I'm talking, we were one and one, you know, with for three to five days. She knew I was a professor. So I was asking pretty heavy questions all the time. And we actually got pretty close. And I think she was, I don't think she was hiding anything from me. I think I got the real deal in terms of, what she said, she'd never take the probably the most critical thing she said, the fact that she would not take a Chinese person for a tour, because they didn't have the appreciation of the minorities and the respect that us in the West did, she felt. And I experienced that we stayed in a Dong village, D-O-N-G. So this is a minority. And this was remote. We had to take a four-wheel drive to get to this community. We went on these dirt roads for hours. I was in a rem- the most remote part of Guizhou, very pretty isolated, you know, into the, there weren't big mountains, but there were big hills and everything was tree covered. I mean, it reminded me of Northern Canada, right? It's just trees everywhere. But we were driving dirt roads. This was miles and miles of dirt roads back into the hills, forested, completely forested hills. And, you know, we got into places where there is landslides, for instance. We had to stop, road was being rebuilt just so we could drive past. So it was like this to get to this village. But it was a famous Dong village, um, but it didn't have many tourists. But I stayed overnight in this village and, of course, everything's in wood, and and the Dong minority were famous for their singing. And there's also something about birth control, too, a unique form of birth control. I can't remember all the details, but um, I remember staying in this uh, community overnight, a couple nights, I think, and, you know, met some of the elderly. And one woman, I've got a great picture. So. Uh, I don't know if that's on the website. Uh, she's an elderly woman, and she's talking to me in her language, which uh, her Dong language. So the language is still alive. It was Dong language. And my tour guide, who is Miao, did not understand it. But our driver, and this is why he was our driver, he knew Dong. And so I assume he was probably Dong himself. So he told us what this elderly woman was saying to me. I practically had my arm around her. She's just a sweet, 86 year old woman, and we're sitting in this, you know in this part of the village. and, and she was apparently just telling me about the pains of growing old. and, and that's what she was talking about. And, but the way she talked to me it was almost like she was, you know, a lover or something. So it was really nice, a beautiful moment. But I do remember when I was sitting down, we were getting ready for dinner in the place we stayed in the village. And there was a group that came in and they were loud. They were Chinese. And they were like, there was maybe four or five, not a huge group, like could have been a family, but they just suddenly came in and they were loud and chatting like crazy and once they left, my guide told me that she hated people like her, like this was the typical Chinese tourist, because I could feel it from her, just got these vibes that she didn't like these people, because apparently they were saying sort of disrespectful things about the Dong people. And she told me, "I know, she knew where they're from. She knew the dialect or something. She said they're from Guangzhou. And Guangzhou is one of the tier one cities of China. So Guangzhou is right next to Shenzhen. Shenzhen was the first town that was open to the world. So it's close to Hong Kong. And Guangzhou is right next to Shenzhen. And Guangzhou is one of the tier one cities of China. And she said, Han Chinese from Guangzhou um, I mean, she didn't say Han, she it was more like people from Guangzhou or like this, like big city people, right? Coming to a village, just the way I would equate it, and talking in a sort of arrogant, maybe disrespectful manner of the Dong. But she told me, you know, I didn't know what they were saying. I don't know exactly what they said. But I could feel it from her, as they were there, that she was repulsed by them. <laughs> And maybe trying to get rid of them even. So she basically, you know, it just reinforced what she told me. I don't take tourists like that sort of thing. She took tourists like me, you know, especially like a professor from the West who would be open and, you know, and interested and just wanting to know and not not judge or anything like that. So that was really fascinating. And that's sort of the only That's probably that whole story is the extent of my understanding of minorities versus uh, China. So, you know, again, summary, she felt that they were trying to make a bit of a show of the government in terms of displaying the minorities and, you know, nice little clothes and things, that they were doing that too much and that they saw it as a great way to make money. Like minorities are a great way to make money, right? So minorities in Yunnan and maybe not Guizhou yet, but I, I do sense it's opening up a little more. Um, they were be people know minorities in China. It's not like you don't hear about them. You actually see minority restaurants in and they were pretty popular, some of them. Actually, ones I remember Xinjiang once, Muslim food was really popular in Jinan. Uh, so people knew about minorities. And when I went to um, Yunnan, I went with my assistant, you know, my Han assistant, and he couldn't wait to go to Yunnan because in his mind, he was young at 20 or something, and he said, minority girls are beautiful. <laughs> so That's what I remember him telling me is how beautiful they are. And his dream was to marry a minority girl, not anyone in particular. And in Yunnan, there was apparently 26 different types of minorities. And I met 16, interacted with 16. And I stayed overnight in you know, the Dong village. I also stayed overnight in a Miao village. And so I stayed in a few. And then also uh, another, uh, an E minority village. And I think the other was a Hani minority village. It may be a bi-minority village, so I did a few. And these are all isolated parts of China. Um, So, yeah, that's my sense of minorities. Um, We had a minority in um, Jinan, uh, in Nanjing. I wasn't aware of that. I never heard about it. But in Jinan, our school was actually in the Hui minority area. Hui, yet another minority, and the Hui are Muslim. And so every day when I went out for a walk, um, I would see Hui minority people. They didn't really wear head scarves or head dresses too much. Wouldn't be like the Middle East at all. They weren't sort of covered up so much, but you know, some maybe a bit of a, a headpiece. Or scarf. It was their restaurants. They're very popular Xinjiang restaurants. You know, you almost always lined up, and this is Han Chinese going to them, and barbecues everywhere, and so and so. I actually met a Hui minority girl, and she took me around, and and we talked, and I never heard any kind of racism or issues like that. She never talked about that. She took me to a. It was a nine hundred year old. Muslim a mosque like one of the oldest it's actually on the internet it's one of the oldest in the world I think and so but it was still there wasn't torn down and I could go I went in and and it was open and she took me there and it was right in this Hui minority district and I think the big impact on Jinan is They were into barbecued lamb. So there's barbecues everywhere of lamb. And it was, oh God, it was so delicious. I just couldn't hold back. When I needed a fix of meat, I'd go to one of these squee minority barbecues and oh my gosh, the spices with the lamb barbecued. Oh, fantastic. So you'd see these carts of, and they'd have these dead sheep in the back of the cart. You'd see this all around and there was a street called Barbecue Street where it was lined with barbecues. And so to me, this was really enticing because this was what u- unique about Jinan. I'd been in Nanjing, but I never saw what I'd say some kind of equivalent to that. Nanjing is more developed, it was a tier two city and Jinan was tier three, so the third one down if you recall, the least, you know, less Westernized, less developed and so on, and considered a little more traditional. And you did feel it. It it was, it's something that you can detect after you've been living in China. And so what happened through one period, I, you know, here I'm teaching human geography about culture and everything. So a lot of what I talked about related to city development, was the government, apparently Jinan did not have a good reputation in China as a particularly, I don't know, clean place. I think they had a bad reputation for being pretty polluted and dirty. They put, you know, there's some pollution issues there. and yeah, and I would definitely say it was worse than Nanjing. And so so to give you an idea, I believe the uh, pollution level, uh, the air quality index reached 600, and I think it even went to 650. And 500 was the level at which you closed schools. And so, but there were these rules in place, but they weren't enforced. But one year they were in Beijing, where they actually did shut down the schools when it reached 500. But we were at I think 660. In um, Jinan, and we're still teaching, you know, you're looking out the window and whole buildings across the road are disappearing because the heavy fog from the pollution. You know, Jinan had all these barbecues, so there's lots of smoke. And my sense was Jinan wanted to clean itself up. I heard this uh, kind of stories through the my senses. This is coming from the mayor of the city. And mind you, I just thought of this now. I actually knew the translator for the mayor. He became a good friend of mine, and so because he was the dean of English, so I could speak with him. And they decided to clean up all these barbecues while I was there. I think the second year I was in Jinan, they just thought, no, we're, we we want to change Jinan's image. We want it to get a better reputation in China as a cleaner place to visit. And barbecues are a problem. It's creating all this smoke. So instead of, it didn't get a sense that people were really consulted. Um, and the, and it seemed like the only way to deal with it or they chose to deal with it was just to get rid of them. Because I actually had a student who had a patent for how to reduce smoke from a barbecue. So this is a high school student <laughs> This would happen sometimes. Some of my high school students would have a patent. And so I remember, and she showed me this special little device to reduce the smoke in Jinan. And so potentially this was another option, but they just decided to get rid of these barbecues. So one year they just cleaned everything up and it wasn't just the barbecues. It was sort of little farmer markets We had a little farmer's market on the street that our school was on, and we'd go out there as foreign teachers, mainly American, and we'd love to go shopping for all the fruits and veg, and you got to know the vendors. And so they almost became friends, you know, and you practice your Chinese on them. And um, so, but in the end, this one year, they were all just... They all had to leave. They were given lots of warning. It wasn't last minute. It was lots of warning, and we were all worried about them. We thought, well, what are they going to do? You know, because we'd gotten to know these people, but we didn't know enough Chinese to really talk to them. But we all we knew this was going to happen, and and one day it did. Like, or by the time by a certain date, everything was cleaned up. So all the farmers' market it was just disappeared and they just planted tree, it became, I'd say it went from fascinating ethnic enclave or something uh, that we all loved as foreigners uh, to like really sanitized Western, you know, paved and planted trees and planters environment. It, It went from, it was full of life initially Like, fantastic. Like, the sidewalks are filled with barbecues and people eating. Like, you couldn't even walk along the sidewalk. You had to walk along the road because the sidewalk was so full of life. And I remember when I first saw this coming from Toronto thinking, This is what Toronto needs. It feels too bleak downtown. It's too sanitized. We need our sidewalks alive with people and activities like people sitting at these little uh, seats and tables and eating barbecued lamb And because these barbecues were everywhere. Very popular. Everyone loved them, but it just was they cleaned it all up. And this apparently with Barbecue Street and so on. And so after that, it felt like a really sanitized uh, city. So what was maybe the most interesting part of Jinan kind of disappeared. And the funny thing was, is that the city really wanted to promote tourism. And we were actually consulted a few times as foreigners, as like foreign teachers, what would we like to see in Jinan? What could be done? to encourage more international tourists. And uh, <laughs> I used to say, and this was after the fact, I said, well, you shouldn't have gotten rid of all those barbecues because I love that stuff. And so did all uh, all my American teacher friends. You know, there's no doubt. we It, it did create smoke for sure, but man, uh, those barbecues, so exciting as a group. We'd go and eat together on the sidewalk, does young row char young roe, you know, uh, lamb, meat, char, barbecue. We'd, yeah, so we'd eat sticks of these like crazy, order dozens of them and beer. And, oh, it was heaven. It was fantastic. A whole group of us, we'd celebrate. But that was pretty much gone. Like after that, it was pretty hard to find them in Jinan. There were a few left here and there, but we basically tried to search our best to find them. I have no idea where these people went. They just disappeared. And, you know, and so, and often these places might be, you know, I remember a noodle place. It was absolutely handmade noodles. You could watch the guy make noodles. I've got a video of it. And he just disappeared. Didn't have that in Nanjing. I didn't get a sense of that minority aspect that Jinan had. And again, this was like, you know, this is a Muslim group. And they had this 900-year-old mosque. And, yeah, it was, there was a Muslim quarter. And we were right either, I think, immediately adjacent to it is, um, And it was fabulous. And it was popular. There's main, sort of more mainstream restaurants, too, that were – it wasn't Hui, I guess. It was Xinjiang, I remember. There was some almost like – a chain of these Xinjiang restaurants and they were always popular the Muslim food teaching in the class I had almost pure Han Uh, I think one year I had one Hui minority person so I think and my perception talking to my Han students was that Hui were seen to be a little different a little maybe not quite as uh clean and uh moral maybe i got that sense but i can't say too much about that um there wasn't any hatred or anything but you did get a sense that they were looked down on a little bit by other students it was seen as a lesser than han minority and that brings us to a close of another episode of the maple dragon the seven-year-long chronicles of a canadian professor in china Get early access, bonus episodes, and more inside Mark Robson's community at themapledragonpod.com. Join us every Monday for a new episode. Till next time, take care of yourself. Goodbye.